Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Svodekindle, SVP of Product and Programming with ACFCS, and on this episode of the Financial Crime Cast, I invite you to strap yourself in for a ride through the ongoing digital transformation that's gripped the financial services sector. It's hardly a novel insight to say that the pace of technological change in this era is nearly unprecedented. The lingering question I have, and some of you may share, is whether that change is a net positive or a net negative for financial crime compliance. The surge in fraud, challenges around customer identity, ease of cyber financial crime have left many of us understandably skeptical about the shift to digital financial services and the promise or lack thereof of these new technologies, but hopeful signs abound if you know where to look for them. One positive shift I've noticed is that underlying technological changes are causing some institutions to view compliance programs as a potential competitive advantage rather than simply a cost center. What does that shift mean for financial crime professionals? And what does it take in terms of tech tools and practical considerations to make that a reality? Here to guide us on these topics and many more in the digital transformation space is Rio Miner, head of intelligence with Refine Intelligence. And we're thrilled to welcome him to the program. Well, Rio, so excited to have you on the Financial Crime Cast. Uh, many of our listeners out there may know of you already, um, but it's fantastic to be having this conversation with you. Um, very exciting topic. We're going to take a wide-ranging look at digital transformation and its impact on the financial space, in particular, financial crime compliance space. Uh, and I think you're the uh, I think you're the right man for the job. So thanks for joining us on the Financial Crime Cast, and uh, it's a pleasure having you, Brian. It's so great to be here. I appreciate you guys having me. Excellent. Well, let's start with uh, start with the basics of who you are, particularly you know for those that don't know you. Um, you have an interesting background in the space, currently the head of intelligence with Refine Intelligence. Head of intelligence, interesting title in and of itself. Um, so I'm interested in hearing about that and your current work, but also how you got here. Um, you know, you have a yeah. you have a, a variety of backgrounds, a financial crime compliance background. How did you end up in, you know, more of the uh, the technology side of things? So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I, uh, I've been in the financial crime space, anti-financial crime space for about 15 years. Um, so I, uh, right now, as you mentioned, head of intelligence for, uh, it is a technology company, Refine Intelligence, which is essentially looking to, to change the way we uh, consume and use financial crime data. I won't get into that too much right now. Folks can look it up, of course. Uh, but what I do as head of intelligence is I really do try to uh, look at the the body of information that we're gathering and analyze that information and look at financial crime, um, you know, from a variety of perspectives. I've spent uh, time investigating. I started my career back in 2008 um, under uh, Jim Richards at Wells Fargo. So I was an investigator, a lowly investigator back then, uh, using antiquated tools to do case management. I remember we had a certain system that that only had, it had a non-resizable window uh, and a, the blue bar of death where you waited for things to upload, you know, every PDF, every, every you know, 56 kilobyte PDF. <laughs> you're like, 
<laughs> okay, now I can upload another one. So like that, those are the tools that I started with. And of course, Excel is one of the same tools that, that we still use today uh, that I've only gotten better and better at. Uh, so I spent, look, 15 years at that company doing um, uh, leading investigations teams, uh, doing special projects to do things like assess risk on emerging technologies. So I helped uh, bring on Android Pay. I was there when Zelle rolled out. I helped develop a correspondent banking monitoring program. Um, and then I also helped develop our investigator training program to try to bring folks in, assess their skills, uh, help them with things that they didn't understand as well and things like that. And then I left there to work at a smaller bank uh, for a couple of years, doing a similar thing, end-to-end -end training, working with everyone from the first line of defense staff, your tellers and their awareness of, of anti-financial crime you know, uh, needs and, and things that they had to do at their level, all the way through you know, the auditors and their annual training and how they understand the business as well. So I've spent a little time in this space. I've used a lot of tools. And I, I think that that's one of the things that drove me towards technology. I've seen financial technology emerge. I actually, I like to joke, I'm, I'm going to get this on record. I'm so happy. Uh, when I was in high school, <laughs> a long, long time ago, I took an economics class, which kind of made me fascinated with things. We played the stock market game, right? Mm -hmm. So I had Mr. Fekinen was a great teacher and he, uh, he had us, um, you know, learn all these things and, and play the stock market game. We pretended to buy stock with fake money and everything like that, like fantasy football, but for stocks, you know? And, uh, and at one point I was like, you know, we talk about these credit cards. This is 1994, 95, understand. And I was like, what if you had a credit card, like, a you know, it's using the visa network, right. But instead of having credit, you could like pay into an account and then have that money just come out as you use it. And he was like, yeah, that's called a debit card. And they're rolling those out. I was like, dang it. Oh, I wasn't <laughs> ready. To, you know, so I invented that. Whoever invented it, I also invented it. <laughs> but they, I mean, uh, from the very beginning, I've been interested in how technology affects uh, the way, you know, our financial lives. Um, and, uh, and, and folks don't use cash as much as they used to, right? So Anybody who's followed me a little bit knows I'm heavily interested in, in you know, newer currencies and newer ways to move money. Like I said, I, I watched the Zelle rollout, this whole peer-to-peer -peer phenomenon. I watched how people used it versus how we thought we were going to use it and uh, things like that. So um, it's been an interesting ride. I'll pause there because I, I feel like I could go on. Oh, by the way, intelligence. Let me say one more thing. I won't pause there. <laughs> I... Uh, I, I spent uh, I spent an entire lifetime. It feels like about nine years plus time in in in, uh, in college doing Army ROTC. I was an Army officer, and the second half of my career I did uh, as an intel officer. And when I joined as an investigator in the financial crimes team, I realized very quickly that these two things were heavy parallels. So another thing I like to say is I figured out that, you know, in a bank, you have fraud folks and you have anti-money laundering folks. And I felt like the AML team was really the, the intel cell. Um, and especially we weren't really getting as much intel out of that amount of data and data crunching that we were doing, not as much intel as we could get out of it, right? There's a lot of business intelligence there to be gained. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, understanding of how the bank itself operates. It really is kind of like an intelligence nerve cell of the bank when you have this, um, when you have this financial crimes team, you know, especially because in the early days, we weren't separated from analytics. 
So they were crunching all the numbers in the same uh, direct report line as the uh, as the investigators. Hmm. Anyway. Very cool. No, very cool. And some fantastic points. And uh, glad we worked in a shout out to, to Mr. Feckin and your uh, teacher there along the way. Too. <laughs> I wonder where he is. Yeah, right. Hopefully he's hopefully tuned into this podcast. Right now. <laughs> I doubt it. There's his impact on your career. But no, I, 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 great, great introduction. Um, and I, you know, thank you for, for revisiting the concept of intelligence and your intelligence career, because I think it's going to be very important as this conversation unfolds to take that viewpoint on, you know, what you're doing as a financial crime professional, right? Um, but I want to return to one of the, the, the points you brought up about Zell, because I've heard, I've heard a lot of institutions say that when they, when they implemented Zell, when they turned it on, you know, they had a lot of ideas about how their customers were going to use it. Um, and those ideas didn't necessarily turn out to be right. You know, they right. used it in very different ways. And it goes back to what I think, you know, we haven't had the conversation yet, so I may be wrong, but I think is going to be a recurring theme throughout this conversation. And that is, you know, do financial institutions really know that much about how their customers are going to use new products in particular, right? Um, and obviously, it's always a bit of a guessing game. But, you know, we talk about know your customer from the financial crime risk management perspective. We don't really, or at least I haven't heard a whole lot of talk about know your customer from the legitimate activity perspective, right. unless it's like statistical analysis to see if they're doing anything bad, right? You know? Right. Um, so well, exactly. And yeah, that's an interesting area we've been focused on is bringing the thought of what you're talking about is business intelligence. I'm sorry, I didn't even let you get to the question. No, please go <laughs> ahead. Uh, so, yeah. So understanding how customers are going to use products. Look, this is an age old problem within uh, business. If you look at a famous example is duct tape, right? The uh, The stuff that... The joke is that it's not very good at sealing ducts, but it's good at everything else. <laughs> and it's like you have this product that was designed to do something. And so Zelle is a great example of that. We actually had, uh, look, in, uh, in transaction monitoring, you have to try to figure out what normal looks like. And it's an area where a lot of people haven't spent a lot of time doing this, unfortunately. Um, like I keep using the term business intelligence, and it's, like, it's basically the idea that we should look at what does cash flow look like in different industries and in different zip codes at different times of year and things like that. All of those produce metrics and we can kind of predict how businesses are going to behave and how humans are going to behave if you apply the same logic to their life stories. Um, but when we looked at Zelle, we thought that it was going to be one of these things that was like, uh, you know, it, another, another name brand example is Venmo, right? And PayPal was a pioneer in this space. We're talking about peer-to-peer -peer transactions, okay? So it's replacing the ability to hand you a few dollars. Okay, because handing you dollars is inaccurate and it requires me to have those dollars on hand and you're not going to have change to give back to me. Nobody carries that anymore. So um, now we've got to split the bill on our credit cards and nobody likes doing these things, right? So I'm the one who wants to like pay for the whole thing and let you Venmo me or let you, and we, now we're start, I've started to use Venmo like it's a, like it's a verb, right? Like we yeah. Google things and use a Kleenex to Xerox my uh, whatever. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, sorry, all the ad affiliates are freaking out. Uh, <laughs> I'm not paid by any of these people, only, only my company. <laughs> and 
Uh, now I'm, I'm guilty of that thing I hate in podcasts where people ramble and laugh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I personally what think people- it brings in a little bit of personality to the proceedings, especially in the uh, you know financial crime world. But uh- fair enough. I'm not the target <laughs> audience. <laughs> So uh, we have this product where we thought people were going to use Zelle like this great way to just directly tie my big bank account to your big bank account. And I can just pay you for half of lunch. No problem, because you got the credit card points and and we're all fine with that. It worked that way a little bit, but it also had this massive blow up. um, And in particular, due to the time and political situation, uh, I think I can say this. We we dealt with a large population of Venezuelan people who were um, Mm. who were using this and instead of just using it to like split lunch they were using it for their entire lives uh and i think we ended up with a lot of places where it ended up replacing cash not just for the personal user but for the casual business owner right so every hot dog vendor every you know cab driver everybody could now accept zell and it was an easy way to go i don't have to carry cash cash is risky um cash actually has you know, all these things tied to it that are problematic. It's bulky, it's risky, all the same reasons that money launderers don't like cash, right? Uh, and now Zelle afforded regular people the way to skip the cash, but they started in particular, certain populations of people like because the Venezuelan economy was collapsing right at the time that Zelle was coming out, everybody who had a bank account for some other reason, they, it was already a highly dollarized economy meaning that they already use dollars in a lot of their everyday lives because that was more stable than their local currency because of the political situation, because of the economic situation. Uh, and so they basically, it just all went over to Zelle. And we had these rates of Zelle usage that were off the charts and just completely unexpected. So we had to do task force after task force to try to assess it and, and figure out what was going on and, and do the, you know, the great thing about intelligence work is you're all and, and investigations in general, which is why I teach things the way I teach them, is that you you gather different um, types of information, different sources, right? And your sources should corroborate one another. It's similar to what journalists, you know, uh, are supposed to do, uh, but also they. Um, it's not just different sources, right? So not just two human sources, like you would want like a couple of human sources, but also like digital indicators or like, you know, other other kind of indicators, right? You always want to pull together different classes of indicator for something to really draw a good conclusion. Um, kind of like having a broad, you know, investment portfolio, mm-hmm. <laughs> different sectors of information you want to pull in to, to corroborate each other because then you get a 3D image of what you're looking for. Mm. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's and, what we did to determine all of this. That's how we got to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and fascinating kind of backstory on it because it is a, just a, you know, a great example of how expectations about customer behavior um, are going to totally be, you know, thrown to the wind by the realities of the customer behavior and how you have to pivot and, and take that kind of intelligence led perspective to, you know, to be able to, to catch up to the reality of what's going on. Um, you know, and that, that short history and in, in, in lesson, I so, so to speak in your bio um, and Zell example, I think lead us into you know, your your role today. And you have an interesting seat today. You're working with a lot of financial institutions around the country, around the world. Um, and you're starting to see, you know, the adoption of um, new technologies in the AML compliance space. Um, 
you know, and we're talking kind of broadly about digital transformation, what technologies are in fact a, a competitive advantage. So I'd like your kind of just overall big picture take on, you know, where you see the most, you know, promise and maybe peril and what the sort of state of uh, of, of financial crime prevention tech adoption is. What's the kind of state of play out there in your, your, your uh, uh, jet setting, Rio? Promise and peril. I love, that's the, the 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 night is dark and full of peril, <laughs> for sure. Uh, look, we're um, at an interesting place technologically, uh, interesting place in a lot of ways, but uh, we've seen many times throughout technology, we're seeing this in different spaces where uh, every time there's an innovation, there's kind of an explosion in, uh, in use cases, an explosion in companies doing sort of similar things and slightly different things. And then those things tend to all gel around new solutions. You know, uh, we saw this, like if you look at audio technology, it's a great little parallel that a lot of us, at least in, in my generation, went through. You know, you went through, you had parents that maybe had eight tracks and stuff that was like, ooh, what was that weird thing? And then, but you wasn't really, your, it wasn't really mine. Uh, then parents had records. I, again, I like records, but we, you know, it wasn't like that big of a thing anymore because we had cassette tape and those were just the best and i just some sometimes i will always lament the old mixtape right i think a lot of us do uh and mixed cds were nowhere near the same thing and now we have streaming music it's off the charts well i, I think that with uh with aml technology we really haven't gotten to streaming yet like we're still stuck in like maybe cds we've just started to figure out this technology that we've been using since i started and the models that we started building all we've done is build better and better versions of those models so that's one one thing where i think we are um but we're also in this explosion of technology when it comes to uh, different forms of currency uh, cryptocurrency um other you know even centralized digital currencies were the peer-to-peer -peer thing i mentioned zelle because zelle was a little bit of a, a mid to late comer but now there's just so many different ways to send people money digitally that it's just like um I'm surprised we haven't gotten rid of cash because we really haven't. Cash is still huge in a lot of areas, um, but getting less so in the legitimate world. So, uh, yeah. So in terms of technology, right, we're at an explosive point. And this is the same thing with when we talk about uh, intelligent technologies, I'll say, such as uh, machine learning processes and robotics um, and what is approaching AI or AI-like tools what we see is this huge explosion of like people are trying new things. We've got chat GPT. Everybody's talking about regulation and stuff like that. Everything is, is kind of going nuts right now. So in the financial crime world, in the financial crime, crime space, same thing. There's a ton of companies out there that have got innovative solutions right now, innovative new approaches to how we're going to solve uh, the problems of the fact that we're still using like 2008 technology. And a lot of it really is like we've gotten better and better at tuning that 2008 technology. But guess what? Like it's still kind of like a, you know, steam shovel. We haven't really gotten to the electric car version, <laughs> you know. Uh, so or like, you know, we really need uh, we really need to update some tools. And there's a lot of companies trying it out. So that's where we are. I think I think that in terms of the regulators, they are starting to uh, recognize that this technology can be safe, um, especially when. Uh, I really like hybrid technology in general. 
There's a lot of studies out there about human and, and automation interface and how when we mingle the two approaches that there really is the best approach there where we can, we can uh, you know, we can train our models, we can train our models to be unbiased, we can use tools that layer on top of, of you know, traditional models in order to, to streamline and automate some of the different um, uh just overwhelming numbers that we see, you know, as banks grow, as, as customer bases grow, the, the workload is overwhelming. So we need things that help push away more of the junk. We, and we're yes. at that point where people are starting to search for those solutions and, and different things are coming out. And I think we're going to see some really great innovation in the, in the very uh, recent years to come. One thing that's not going away is uh, they talk about how innovation money is going away, but um, regulation is going up. Regulation's not going down. So the great the great news in the regulatory space is you're probably going to still need more, you know, regulatory tech and, and uh, you know, innovative fintech type solutions. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it, uh, excellent points across the board. I think, um, you know the other the other piece of the, the puzzle is on the regular regulatory side is just not only you know over the seems like we've been talking about this for a while now um, in terms of do the regulators you know uh, are they open to innovative tech uh, are they going to be okay if I use AI or whatever the case may be machine learning you know that type of thing robotic process automation and you know the answers have consistently been yes with the right guardrails but increasingly. You know, I see more and more regulators using AI or supervisory technology, you know, soup tech themselves, right? So they're in the same boat that you all are out there in, in some ways and that they have, Rio, to your point, you know, too much too much data, too much information, too much noise to sort through, um, you know, and they have the same onus to find the right, you know, whatever, whether it is a... Uh, a troubled financial institution or ML weaknesses or whatever, they have to find the right signals and all the noise. So they're increasingly using, you know, this, a, a, a similar tool set to a very different purpose, right? So uh, mm -hmm. definitely, definitely driving, you know, innovation and the, the appetite for innovation forward. Hopefully it's kind of a virtuous cycle of like continued adoption on both sides, right? And I guess that leads into the next question is, you know, okay, so we got a little bit of state of play where where we go next where are we going for here from here and to, to especially you know i want to pick up your idea of like the optimistic side of things right um to start with and then maybe we can talk about the pessimistic side of things and that is the <laughs> you know the uh empowerment of um of the the human investigator or the human person using these tools um because that's obviously the most hopeful outcome is like the combination of automation, you know, machine learning, and then the human factor. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think sustainability is an interesting word to throw in the conversation too, because particularly as we went through the pandemic and then Russia-Ukraine crisis, you know, it's been a tough past few years for a lot of financial crime professionals out there. Um, they've had a lot of fraud, AML, sanctions risk to keep up with. And, yep. you know, there's a lot of a lot of staff burnout. So so, you know, I guess where are we going kind of big picture on the, the tech side and also how does sustainability play into that for financial crime professionals? Right. 
Right. I like how you talk about uh, empowering the investigators, right? That's one thing that people are, are focused on with digital adoption is how much uh, it's going to um, impact the human capital that, that are currently doing the work. Um, and everything that I read about digital transformation is very positive about the fact that uh, these tools are meant to empower us. So really, yeah, I mean, if you go from using a shovel to using an excavator or, or a, you know, a, a bulldozer, you can be more productive. You can spend one hour doing what used to be a 12-hour task, right? And then you can get done with that hour and move on to doing something else and you repurpose those hours. So that is one of the major goals of Things like, especially when we talk about a term, uh, robotic process automation, which means that we are going to automate something that feels fairly robotic to begin with, okay? And, and so tools like this, let's talk about this type of tool for a moment. Uh, let's say you have to log into a certain system and pull a statement, or worse yet, open a PDF of a statement and copy and paste that into a spreadsheet and then try to readjust the data a little bit to get it into the right place. And, and you have to do that on a monthly basis. And the statements don't come in on like a, a regular basis. They either come in like if the 15th is not the 15th and it's, you know, Monday is the 17th, they come in on the 17th. So you can't tell it, you can't tell a robot to just go in and look on the 15th because if the 15th is Saturday, it doesn't work. So, um, the robotic process automation is smart enough to actually do this, where it can uh, go and, and do this whole process of getting this information out of the system. And it can be programmed to be smart enough to say, aha, well, if it's Saturday, then you go in and look again on Monday and do this little process and give it to me in this format. Okay. That's a very robotic process. It's a time consuming and painful process for a human to do. It's nothing for a robot to do. So with new automation tools, there's processes like these can be automated. Now, Unfortunately, I'm actually, if we go back to the current state question, one thing I find also is not only are some of um, the larger institutions still using kind of like blunt force instruments of the past, um, a lot of the smaller institutions aren't using any tools at all. There's people I've talked to, I don't know, a handful of banks uh, who are saying, well, we just... We just automated this process with, you know, X uh, transaction monitoring system. And before that, it was just a report. It was just a spreadsheet, uh, which is essentially like saying they've been using paper, right? <laughs> and I, I just am blown away by the lack of adoption of some of these technologies. So there's an overall theme here. It's like um, one of the old adages from Jim Richards was click something new every day. <laughs> and the way I like to repeat it is you're probably not going to break it. You can always hit the undo button, right? So like I, I like to say yeah, control Z or command Z, by the way, is undo in almost any program. <laughs> so, so, you know, a lot of times it just takes us to be um, willing to try new tools in order to get them to really work because uh, the tools are out there, right? So things that I mentioned, you know, that whole robotic process automation thing I just mentioned, that exists. Um, it's just that we haven't figured out the best ways to use it, right? We haven't identified, we haven't done our like, uh, lean slash six Sigma, like process mapping and like found the places where we can put it in because nobody's willing to do these pro projects take so much time and so much energy and they, they're slow to get started. And there's a lot of approvals involved. So it can be challenging to adopt things on a user level. It can be challenging to adopt things on an institutional level, um, 
but the problems are there and, and the pile of, of uh, non-productive alerts isn't getting any smaller. <laughs> it's going to keep, keep, you know, if your bank grows like it's supposed to, it's going to keep getting bigger. And if your bank merges with another bank, I believe that's going to be insanity on your investigators, especially when you let half of them go in, in the merger process, right? And now, you know, you just being understaffed and overworked leads to burnout, it leads to turnover, uh, and then you end up paying new people more to recruit them in a, in a difficult environment, you know, and on and on. So um, you can invest a little bit in technology now, especially emerging technology that um, if you're willing to try new things, you can invest in this now and get a handle on the digital adoption that's happening. Another thing yeah. I hear, uh, again, at the risk of just going on and on, <laughs> another thing that I hear is that like uh, some banks say, well, our customer base is a little older. Um, and, uh, you know, and therefore we don't do, you know, this or that, and we don't do digital and they're very like hands-on and they like the phone and stuff like that. And I think that that's fantastic, right? But you also have to plan for like 20 years from now. And your older customer, your younger customer base now is going to be your main customer base in 20 years. And so those folks are going to want, you know, in the words of uh, of the great, you know, 21st century poet uh, Aziz Ansari, text me that. <laughs> like, is something on fire? No, text me that. <laughs> and I, you know, when I ask people these questions, I sort of do my little infor informal market surveys. If you wanted to talk to, you know, if, if your bank wants to communicate with you, what do you want to do? Blah, 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 this or that. And it's interesting how different people want different things. So, not only that, but we banks have to look at banks and financial institutions have a very, uh, competitive environment for customer attention nowadays. And so they have to be very careful that their customer experience is like well curated, right? And they can, they can only, they, they're going to have to use digital tools to customize their interaction with the customer more and more. They're going to need to find ways to say, well, what does that particular person want, right? Like Instagram can figure it out, right? Like Amazon can figure it out. The bank needs to figure out what that customer wants right now and only give them that. And that's what the keeping that experience, you know, tight is what's going to uh, help them have that competitive edge. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah. No, fantastic points. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I love the, I love the text me that uh, reference. To, uh, <laughs> I got to like, I sometimes I'm not sure if I should say people's names or not, but at some point too, somebody's going to go, that's his joke. And I'm going to say, well, I can't, I can't say. I made it up, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, if he's listening, he might be, he, he, he might, exactly. be, might be pretty mad at us. <laughs> Royalties. <ding. laughs> um, no, I made a, a, a lot to pick up and unpack there. I mean, I think listening to you, what stands out is just how different um, the you know the landscape is when it comes to tech adoption, the state of sophistication. And I've absolutely heard the same things um, that you're you know seeing firsthand that some institutions are still you know, trying to do things on spreadsheets and kind of struggling along very manually and, and others are just mm -hmm. in entirely different places. Um, and it, it does create a very interesting, you know, we talk about the kind of, we talk about the financial system or, you know, the financial crime compliance world or that type of thing. Well, it's like, it's not one world, it's many different worlds operating very yes. differently, many different systems operating very differently. 
um, right. at the moment. And, uh, and it, it does create a very kind of challenging fragmentation. Um, I want to, I want to pick up on some terms that we've been throwing around without defining, which is always hazardous, but we'll, uh, yes. we'll do it here and, uh, we'll get to them now. So if you've been hearing these and wondering, you know, how we're using them, we've mentioned robotic process automation. Um, we mentioned artificial intelligence, machine learning, and we've elaborated on some of these, but do you mind just giving the, you know, the quick sort of, uh, reader's digest if, that's not like the most outdated reference um, definitions of, you know, of these terms, starting with robotic process automation, kind of working on yeah. machine learning and AI from there. Well, let me, uh, yeah. All right. So robot, robotic process automation, we start with, that was uh, what I mentioned before, and that's taking a, you can do this. What I was talking about is a software robot, right? A lot of people don't even realize you can have a software robot, um, which is similar to people are more familiar with like a uh, an assembly line robot that builds an automobile. You know, it's this thing comes along and it welds a certain thing onto it and then it moves along and it welds the same thing over and over. So we have software robots that can do the same thing in, in the world of of uh, of greater machine tools. <laughs> um and so that's that's a way there's ways to just build these software robots that repetitively do things that a human would otherwise spend their time doing. And what it generally is designed to allow is for the robot to do what a robot is good at, which is something repetitive and mindless and the human like data entry and the uh, and the human to do what the human is good at, which is analysis and person to person communication and things like that. Okay, and so that's those are robotic process automation tools where you can just speed up the human by providing them with an end bit of information rather than having them go get things and copy and paste them. <laughs> uh, and then machine learning is uh, is much more complex. Um, this starts to get into the world of advanced math mathematics, um, algorithms, uh, prediction models, and things like that. So what you essentially have is that is uh, within statistics, you have different ways to gather data and analyze that data. And then based on the data that you gather, you can kind of extrapolate to figure out the next thing. And what we found is that statistics can be highly predictive. And this is exactly how things like Amazon uh, can look at your shopping patterns and they can give that data to Google and have it show up in your web browser and all this stuff is that um, basically they're using these the, your behavior-based data, right, is populating a model, and that model is spitting out predictions of what it thinks you're going to want next. And it's based on other people who have done the same thing. So within machine learning, that's what that is, is where the machine, it's like uh, input and output is what we tend to do with automation generally, right? And so the machine gets data input, and the output is some some uh, some results. It's going to do something based on that. So it's if this, then this is kind of the way machine learning works. You can do what they call supervised machine learning and unsupervised machine learning. I'm not an expert in these things. I've merely read a little bit about them. Uh, and so machine learning, if you supervise it, it's basically you're constantly looking at the output and tuning it. That's more along the lines of the way we tend to do things in financial crime. Uh, unsupervised is more of like once you set the parameters, you kind of let it get, gather data and run, and then you just you you live with the output. Okay, and then the unsupervised, I think 
I think that that starts to step into like the black box area, right? And some mathematicians are going to skewer me on this stuff. So uh, forgive me, because I'm not actually a techno, uh, like a, uh, I'm more of a professor and not a practitioner, right? When it comes to this stuff. Uh, but essentially what we're dealing with here is, is sort of predictive mathematics, right? You can do um, what they call regression, which is where you, you take a set of data plotted on a chart and you can do like a best fit line. And that regression can be linear or it can be logarithmic, okay? And the logarithmic is where you can predict things that are a little less, um, well, they're nonlinear. <laughs> you can predict things that are essentially a little more random, right? Is where you can start to do, if you do logarithmic regression, you can really predict things that are, that are a little weirder. So these are the types of things that are built into a lot of today's um, uh, prediction models for, you know, the financial crime alerting that's going on, the transaction monitoring, this is a lot of that same stuff. If you're doing it well, you're doing it based on this stuff. Um, but unfortunately, it it's not as highly predictive in terms of looking for the bad guys. That That's one of the things that we've found is that, you know, uh, there's just a lot of randomness in these financial transactions and some of it can be pretty hard to, to uh, model. Now, let me just uh, cover there. The last thing is, is artificial intelligence, okay? And what this is, is this broad term that we use to, to mean, you know, uh, the use of computers to replicate the human mind, um, right? And then that's kind of this ultimate high goal, right? You think about, C-3PO in Star Wars, and he's so good, he can speak six million languages and and uh, and help you be a diplomat in any one of those languages, right? That's some real AI right there, uh, because <laughs> the goal is, they, there's a thing called the Turing test, uh, and so the real pinnacle of real AI, supposedly, uh, at least from what I've read, is to be able to, to pass this Turing test, which says that a human interacting with a robot doesn't know it's a robot and isn't able to tell the difference, okay? And if you can pass that, then you've approached real artificial intelligence. Anything less than that, and we're talking about something different. Um, and so this, you can, you can apply things like robotic process automation and machine learning in combination with, you know, robotic structures, and you can get them to do amazing things. And we've gotten really close. And this is where now we're starting to see movies about, you know, people falling in love with the, the computer. And there's uh, some Google engineer, right, who quit, I think, and said this thing is sentient, you know, and it's like, so it, clearly starting to believe that this thing is human, which Gets, gets you pretty close to a Turing test, I would say. So maybe we're getting there, um, but we I don't think we've seen real, real AI. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff I'm not aware of. Uh, the more I learn, the less I know. So, <laughs> <laughs> the only, As Socrates said, the only true wisdom consists in knowing you know nothing. So, yes, uh, <laughs> yes, well put. Um, no, fantastic points. And actually, you know, uh, kudos to you for those explanations. I thought they were really well done. I've asked that question to a number of people and uh, those are great answers. And you also managed oh, to work a lot more in, of uh, the underlying mathematics into it than most people do. So, you know. Ah. I'm a newcomer to, to statistics, so it's fresh in my mind. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's also, I, I also am, am uh, really interested in a point you brought up around combining these, right? Because sometimes we, uh, uh, when, I, when I've talked to people about them, it's, it's been 
conversations about each one kind of in isolation, like oh, robotic process mm -hmm. automation, machine learning, and then, you know, unsupervised learning, then a step up to like general artificial intelligence, if that even exists. Yeah, right. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it sounds like these are, you know, not discrete steps along the way, but they're just different elements that you could combine in financial crime compliance technologies, right? Yeah. Um, and so you should be looking at each one as, you know, what what problem does it solve? And, you know, how do I use this discrete kind of tool or technique to solve that problem? Um, yeah, very much so. That brings me what? to, I guess, you know, my last question on this. Um, you know, we, we've, been, we've been talking, I think, pretty optimistically about the future. Um, and more recently, you know, we, uh, we worked in a, a slightly more pessimistic angle, like AI oh, yeah, is becoming sentient and uh, it's going to take over. And that's definitely a legitimate concern. Very many intelligent people seem to be concerned about it. What does that mean for financial crime compliance? Um, you know, I have heard of, of, you know, a trend of, essentially machine learning driven tools that can do the work of like a level one analyst um, as well or better than some level one analysts out there. So, you know, I think maybe best case we're looking at upheaval, right. Um, or change um, to put it in less scary terms. What, but what do you think? I mean, are, uh, is there sort of mass scale job loss in the future? I've heard the completely different take, which that, in you know the next 10 years there'll be thousands more jobs required in this field um, yeah where do you land on this you know what is uh ai and what is the adoption of these technologies right. mean for for the future of jobs and careers in this space it's it's tough to say and uh undoubtedly there will be careers that, that are going to have to change um i would say again looking at technological adoption throughout history, what we tend to see is that those workers are very well repurposed. Um, and, you know, the, the allowing a human to do more allows them to do more, and then they spend other time on other things. Um, and, and so I think that we'll see a lot of that. Uh, look, there's also been kind of a ballooning effect in compliance jobs. I remember when I got into this job uh, in 2008, <laughs> they would take anybody. <laughs> I didn't have a compliance background, right? I had an interesting background. I have a, a background that lends me to want to do this type of work. Um, and I had the skills and the, you know, the writing skills and the Excel skills to make it happen. But the fact is, I didn't love doing investigations uh, day after day, five investigations a day, trying to dig into this stuff, not having nowhere near enough time to actually do the investigation, spending my time going and getting check images, spending my time waiting for the blue bar. Like, you know what I mean? So it was not like a happy job. It wasn't even the kind of investigating that I wanted to do as an investigator. Um, so I would also say that, you know, maybe job satisfaction can go up on a lot of these jobs that are existing right now where people are just buried, you know, legitimate professionals who want to fight crime, who are spending their time looking at every time somebody buys a house and has a wire transfer related to it, you know, and it's like, and, and 95% false positive is the number. So, uh, I think that if you, yes, some low level repetitive jobs that people don't stay in, if they can help it might end up going away. But the fact is, is like, if there's such high turnover in some of these jobs, 
we have to look at those root causes. And if technology can help with that, then those people can go, they can find jobs that they enjoy more. Or more hopefully, my I heard somebody say to me just the other day in a, a potential client meeting, any anything you can do to help my investigators is good. <laughs> right? And that's the thing is I'm not even, let's, we can talk about jobs lost once the people that are doing the job now aren't overloaded because right now they're buried under this and they're like going home at night and hacking through it at night while their you know, spouse is putting the kids to bed. Like I'm telling you, these people are earning their salaries doing the investigations and those folks doing the repetitive work. It's not because they're like, woohoo, repetitive work. Yeah. <laughs> They'd rather be doing something more more human centered as as well. So humans do analysis better. Robots do you know hunting and gathering of information better. Yeah, fantastic point, and I think really a a great way to view it and a nuanced way to view it too, because it speaks back to one of the central themes we've been talking about here, which is that that theme of sustainability, right? Um, and particularly, oh, I forgot to mention sustainability. You did ask about that. <laughs> you you got to it. So well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I mean, we are in a digital. You know, whether we like it or not, we're in a digital transformation, and that digital transformation is making things, you know, unsustainable in a lot of ways for financial crime investigators and a lot of other industries. Right. So, you know, we need tools and we need new ways of approaching the tools we have and the techniques we have to make things sustainable for uh, investigators, for analysts and for the humans that ultimately still need to, to do this work. So, so appreciate the perspective, Rio. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. Um, Again, my guest has been Rio Minor, head of intelligence with Refined Intelligence. Finds doing some uh, really interesting work, catching the good guys, um, as we as we hinted at here. You know, really getting to to know your customers' uh, uh, legitimate activity better, or as well as hopefully, uh, you know your customers' bad activity because it's an essential part of the puzzle to dealing with this uh, this wider transformation journey that we're all in. So, um, Rio. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Brian. Uh, it's a yeah. pleasure always. Great. And uh, I urge everyone to uh, to listen to another episode of the Financial Crime Cast. Uh, we are available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, many other places where your favorite podcasts live. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. And uh, please join us on a future episode. Goodbye for now. <laughs> <laughs>